Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, uh, October the 13th, and this is episode 2751 of the Survival Podcast. And we're going to talk today about remote and even off-grid bug-out locations. This is something that's uh, near and dear to my heart. For It, it wasn't an off-grid location, and I, I thought we would bring off-grid into this today. Um, it wasn't an off-grid location, but for a long time, almost a decade, I was a two-property owner. I owned a remote property in Arkansas on five acres, and when I say remote, it was remote. Every single person that ever came out there was kind of blown away by how close to a town called Hot Springs it was, and yet how out in the middle of nowhere it was. It, it, it was inevitable that if we told somebody how to get there and, like, we, say, met in town, and they ended up ahead of us on the way to our house, like, oh, just go up there, and we'll be right behind you. That when we got up to them on the dirt road, they were doing about three miles an hour and freaked out. And, and there were things about this property that we loved, and we loved... A lot of it. And one of the things that we loved was everything I just described. Another thing that we loved was the neighbors. We had some neighbors, and they were great people, as few of them as there were. We loved the area, the location, the mountains, the environment. And we really loved a house payment that was less than a lot of people's cars payment. And that was all in. That was house, mortgage, insurance, uh, property taxes, everything was under 500 bucks. So we made a move eventually. We sold our house and became one property owners, and we moved to Arkansas. And I started looking now for an even more remote location. That seemed like a great jumping-off location to have yet a, a even more remote, more bug-out location-like property, though I didn't really feel the need for it there the way that I still feel somewhat of a need for it here. It was more like I want it. And we lived out there for a couple of years, and I eventually stopped looking for that second property because it became evident to me that we were going to make a move back to Texas. Uh, my wife really struggled with being away from our family. I think it was a good thing for the time that we did it. My wife and I got together. My son was already seven years old. He's my stepson. We never had that time that new married couples have where it's just you. And that, that couple of years up there was, for us, in many ways, that. There was no family interference. There was no, you know, we saw people when we wanted to. And uh, everything was great except she couldn't deal with being away from family. And on top of it, her father went into cognitive decline. And, you know, we had the time freedom where she could help take care of her dad, and really the rest of the family couldn't. So we, we found a place and we moved back. And it was a total blessing. If you look at all the things that have happened since I've moved back to here, the projects, the backyard ponds, the livestock, the uh, workshops. There was never a TSP workshop until we moved here. And we did our first workshop here, I think, three months after we moved here, maybe four. So it was the universe saying, hey, look, here's an opportunity. But there's this thing in the back of my mind that constantly says, Jack, two is one and one is none, and you have one property. There's a lot of advantages to having a bug-out location, even if you never bug out to it. We're going to be talking about that today and more. Um, a getaway property. Real estate's a good investment in and of itself. And there's starting to 
turn up some opportunities out there right now. There, there really are. For a while, the rural properties got stupid expensive. And I think if you're looking for a three-bedroom house on Maple Street uh, out in the county, so to say, it's still stupid expensive as people continue to leave Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York and Chicago and all those other places in droves. But the type of land I'm talking about today has seemed to all of a sudden start popping up again at more reasonable prices. So I thought it would be a, a good time to take what's in my head and what's going on in the world and bring them together, and we're going to have a new look at the off-grid or even the on-grid bug-out location. We'll do that in just a minute. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor today, number one today, is Ready Made Resources. That's right, Ready Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready made and ready to go, point, click, and buy on their website. And they are the superstore of everything prepping, long-term sponsor of the show. Been with us over 10 years, which is insane. Check them out today. Company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits.com has become kind of the onboarding gateway website of choice on the internet to taking people from people that don't know how to make a knife into people that do know how to make a knife. And there's a lot of great kits out there that you can start out with where all you're really doing is picking out some handling material and doing the final fit and finishing and sharpening, et cetera, maybe making a sheet, something like that. And that is a great gateway. You learn part of the skills necessary to make a knife from raw materials. And then you can begin to take that further if you want to. There's a lot of different ways to make knives, and KnifeKits.com is a great way to get started in it. It's very affordable. And it, what, what kind of a, what, what could be a cooler way to create a family heirloom? I know that, um, For all the issues in my past with my family, if I had a knife that my father and I made together, it would be something I would never part with, even if it wasn't that great. Even if it was like the first one we ever made and it was kind of shoddy and had some issues with it, it wouldn't matter. And I think that's a lot, something that holds back a lot of people from giving this a shot. Well, I won't be able to make it perfectly. No one ever makes their first one perfectly, but no one ever makes their first one more than once, no matter what you're doing with a knife. That could be a knife that that kid will give to a grandson and even a great-grandchild, and maybe they'll look at that little blemish or that little imperfection and still say, hey, this was the first one great-granddad made. He made it with granddad. Think about that. Where else can you get something that would have the potential to last that long other than KnifeKits.com? Check them out today, KnifeKits.com. With that, let's talk about our quote of the day today. Quote of the day today is from John Muir. He said, the clearest way into the universe is through a forest wilderness. I, I have to say, um, there, there's a lot of truth in that. And it, it links in a weird way to Jeff Lawton's many quotes about the forest being the teacher. That if you truly want to understand the world and the way that we are supposed to exist in it, you can only truly learn that in the forest. Man finding his place, the clearest way into the universe is through a forest wilderness, John Muir. And I thought it would be a good quote for today since we are talking about bug allocations and in general, those are at least, not in the wilderness, at least in the woods. And I love the woods, guys. I really do. And that's part of what has me wanting to uh, kind of set the stage for what today's show is really all about. The classic bug out location in the mind of the prepper is when the zombies march and steal your tomatoes, you're going to run off to your cabin in the woods suit up with the other wolverines, and fight off the enemy. I don't think that's very practical or very likely. I think that the bug-out location is best thought of, if you want to go in military terms, as a fallback location. Something has compromised my location, 
So I am falling back to my predetermined, prearranged fallback location, which is a hell of a lot better than running the other way, because that's your other option. This is why when you plan a military operation, you plan a fallback location. You plan for support there, hopefully. You plan for reuniting with uh, other members of a team that may have broken off, or reinforcements, or resupply, or what have you. And if you don't do that, then what do you got? You see the problem. See, most of us, we live our lives that way. We have no fallback location for anything. What if you lose a job? Well, I'll find another job. Wouldn't it be a good idea to already have a system in place designed to make that more likely than not? So when I look at real estate with this and, and bug out locations, I, I just see it as another example of the same thing. I have a place that if everything goes wrong here, I can go stay. There could be a fire that burns my house down. Maybe I'm the one bugging out, but my, my, my neighbors aren't. Well, there's other options, but are there better options? Do you see what I mean? Right. And at the same time, I believe in function stacking. That's something we learn in the world of permaculture. So I think if you're going to buy a bug-out location only for a bug-out location, then it's a mistake. I was going to say unless, and then I was really like, okay, that's a function. That's a function. And that would be, I'm going to buy it as a bug-out location and hold it as an investment and not really do anything with it. That, that's that's kind of limiting, but you would still have a second function. It's, you see, it's one of those things that you can buy for redundancy in your life, and it, 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 it's, it's inevitable that unless you do something to actually make it worth less money, that it's probably a good place for your money to sit in an investment. If you look at the way real estate has performed over the years, and I'm talking you know, decades, it, it generally doesn't lose money. And the type of land that we're talking about here, Waltz, and sometimes it doesn't, ne it doesn't necessarily gain value as quickly as other real estate. It seldom, if ever, really loses value unless you paid too much in the first place. And it's not that it lost value, it's you, you overpaid for the property. So if you go back and you look at what you could buy 10 acres of rural land in your area of choice for 25 years ago and you look at it today, you're going to notice a difference. And in spite of the fact that we're sitting in one of the worst economic disasters we've ever created for ourselves, it's probably worth more than it was 20 years ago. Now, go back to our 2008-2009 recession. Go to the peak of the 2009 recession. Then go 20 years prior to that and look at a piece of real estate in the same classification. And you're going to see that it was pretty resilient during that recession, too. Go back to 2001, 2000, 2001, 1999, that, that dot-com bust. Find a piece of rural land like we're talking about today. Then since you were at 2000, go back to what, 1980, the year that we're looking at for country music today, and see what a piece of land like that would have cost in 1980. And what you'll see is even if you, if you weigh land against some of the worst performing times in history, it does well as an investment. So it has that value. But it also has the value of being land that you can go do stuff at. For me, above all things, <clears throat> if I have a getaway property that I can go stay at and be comfortable and I can fish, I'm good. That's, that is a huge function stack for me. I'd love to hunt. I'd love to have a place where I can shoot my guns a lot more freely than I can around here. And I would look for that and I would want that. I'd want to put in some kind of a, a reasonable range on a piece of property like this, some place where I can do that. And not being able to put a range in, at least, you know, like a 50-yard range or something like that. So I can at least, you know, sight, sight rifles in, do some basic training and stuff like that. That, that would probably be a deal breaker. Um, not being able to hunt deer, 
or at least not having a really great opportunity to hunt deer, eh, I gotta live with it. Not, you know, hogs. Hogs and deer, great. Can't do it, maybe still okay. But fishing. And that is either, you know, there's creek, river, uh, pond already there, or high potential ease of installation of ponds that I can stock. You know, if I, I, I was talking to a friend today about a property that I found today, doing some research on, on, on today's show. And it was, uh, 10 acres, creek on one of the boundaries. And I was looking at it and I said, man, I'd put four acres of water on that, four acres of surface water, and probably take six ponds or more to do it, having that type of a water system on a property like that. I, 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 could, I could go there, spend weekends there, and never leave. And, and, and the, the reason I tell you that isn't so that you'll say, oh, I want to do a check does. I want to get a property and put some... No, I want you... What is it for you that would, that would make that second property worth having? And there's a lot of ways to do this. I'm going to talk about kind of remote bug-out locations. I want to be clear, though. A property, as long as it's something you can easily afford, pay for in full, or easily service the debt against, that's more of a conventional vacation property, nothing wrong with that. I think Airbnb on a property for income, great. If you can only afford the property due to Airbnb, I don't think it's a good idea. And I'll tell you why. 2020. There's been a lot of Airbnb bankruptcies in 2020. Lots of them. And yet those properties aren't selling for a song because they're, they're being either, they're just sitting on the market not moving, or there's been some bailout money available to keep them afloat, or they're being snatched up by people who are buying them now as residences as they exit the city. So there is an exit plan there, but I would say a lot of Airbnb leveraged people got lucky, and a lot of people who are running Airbnb properties right now, I've talked to a few. They're surviving, but it's it's right on the edge, and, and, and a lot of them had, have had to dip into other investment monies to backfill and hope they come out the other end of this. So I love the idea of Airbnb being a property if it's the right kind of property to do it with where you're not putting the property at risk as a, as a fallback location by doing it. Um, however, however, I do not like the idea of doing it where it is the only, like, if I don't have this, I can't afford it. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible plan because it has no plan for failure. All plans must have a plan for failure. As we look at this today, what I want to lead off with is that no matter what, real estate is real estate and emotions must be ignored. I've said this for years. I've talked about real estate in various ways on the pro on the program because it's one of the greatest uh, investments you can make when done properly uh, in your life, in your long duration retirement, in every way possible. Um, my my uncle, who was the uncle that I was often advised to listen to about money, but not women. His name was Stephanie. He's a great uncle. Uh, this is my father's uncle. He often said to me, "The one thing about real estate." is they're not making any more dirt. And I know we talk about building soil and all, but you get the man's point. There's a, a, a fixed inventory of real estate that's available, a fixed inventory. And, and that means that since you have a fixed inventory and an ever-growing demand, you have continuous upward pressure on the underlying value of average properties. That doesn't mean you can't go do something stupid like buy a beach condo in Miami and lose your ass. But in general, when you're talking about buying squares of dirt, it's one of the most solid, safe investments you can make. If we do it right, that starts with not overpaying. And the number one reason people overpay for real estate is emotion. 
there are certain times in life that I believe one of the greatest teachers in how to conduct ourselves in society and in our lives is the, 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 the science fiction universe created by Gene Roddenberry we call Star Trek. And the thing to channel from that when you are dealing with real estate is Vulcan logic, devoid of emotion. That's probably a terrible way to live, but it's a great way to handle investments, especially real estate. And I say real estate more than other investments because real estate, above all, has the ability to pull at our desires. So you look at a property and you think about everything it could be, and the first thing you need to understand is you can look at it think about everything it could be, and only some portion of those will it ever be. You will never turn a property into everything you have in your head. Real estate agents know this. They play it up, and they use it against you. Fear of missing out, FOMO, huge. I remember when we bought our first house. We had a good deal on it. We put an offer in. The offer was accepted. We had a contract date. My wife was very excited. Several times we drove by it. They never took down the for sale sign. Old real estate trick. That way somebody calls on the house. That one's actually under contract. I know we didn't put the sign on it, but now that I got you on the phone, let me show you some properties like it. But every time we drove by and saw somebody looking at it, she would freak out. What if, what if, what if? I'm like, then we'll buy another house just like it because that's how much houses like this sell for right now. How can you be so calm? Because it's real estate. They might not be making any more of it, but there's an awful lot of it available. Sometimes there is that smoke and deal that you need to move on fast and you need to know when to do that. But in general, you must handle all real estate, commercial, residential, recreational, etc. It must all be handled the same way. There is no emotion. It's a piece of property. I'm going to buy a piece of property for no more than it's worth. And then I'm going to own it. And I'm going to have a way that I can get out of ownership if I need to because I have not overpaid. That's just important on everything. Let's talk about off-grid a little bit. I want to give you just a few things about off-grid. Um, number one on the good. So I've got three good and four bad. That doesn't mean that the good isn't outweigh or the good doesn't outweigh the bad. It's just it's just what I came up with. The first is better deals. Many properties that are difficult or very expensive to get grid electricity to sell for a lot less than properties just like them that can get electricity or already have it. A lot less. So much less that you can... This is the one way that I've heard a cogent argument. This comes from expert uh, council member Sean Mills. But the only place I've heard a cogent argument of how a, a solar system can pay for itself, specifically on day one after its installation. And that is we have two properties. And they are, for all intents and purposes, like-kind properties. Prop to, just to make this easy with math in our head, property number one is $100,000. Okay? A lot of properties we're talking about today would be far less than that. But let's say $100,000. And property one has grid power available. Okay? And it, it has, but it does not have water. We're going to take that out of the equation just to simplify everything because you have to run all the numbers. It is no, so one way or another you have to put a well in if you want water or do water catchment or something. The only thing it has that property B does not have is power. Property B is $40,000, but you got no choice. You're going to have to go off grid. If you can say then turn $30,000 That's a pretty extensive solar system. And these, are, these numbers are real numbers that have happened before. You now have $70,000 into the property. Now that the property has power on it and its own independent system, 
it's worth, assuming the first property is actually worth $100,000, the same amount of money. Remember, they're like kind except for. In fact, it might be worth more now because the original property has power available, but it wasn't there yet. It still had installation costs, etc. Plus, people like off-grid. But now you've effectively purchased a $100,000 property for $70,000. I use those rounded-off numbers because they are very close to an actual deal that I saw done. You can go for less money, absolutely. I'm just pointing out, that alone means that you can actually get better deals and your total cost on the property, even after solar installation, can be less. This presupposes that you know how to do some of the work yourself, because having somebody else do it for you will almost never work out that way. Okay, But you can have somebody else do parts of it. A lot of solar installation is mounting brackets and panels, and it's not that hard. It can be done. Next, more independence. There's no doubt that if you have a solar system and uh, grid goes down, you tend to not really care. You tend to not really think about it. You tend to just go on with your life. So there is a, a significant amount of independence with not being tied to somebody else's system. And the third one is, when something goes wrong, and it will, likely you will know how just about everything works. If you buy a place with a pre-installed solar system, you likely could have no more knowledge than the person who moves into this house that I live in right now and you know you flip a switch on a breaker and power comes from the grid. It doesn't require any knowledge to use a system like that. But if you build a system like that, even if you contract some level of the work, you are likely to have enough understanding to deal with some of the things that eventually will go wrong. The bad. Straight off of that one, it's all on you. I've never owned an off-grid property. I have owned now three, yeah, three properties on well and septic. And it gives me a little perspective that I think people that have never owned property like that may not have when you're fantasizing and, and, and romanticizing the off-grid lifestyle. Right now, if you live in a house where you have water from the city, And there's a problem. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a problem with your water. There's only two types of problems that you can really have in the context I'm speaking. You can have a problem on the city side of the meter, and it's inconvenient for you, but long duration, it's the city's problem. They have to fix it. And unless we're talking about a city that completely implodes, i.e. the zombies are marching, cats and dogs are having puppy kittens and raining from the sky, in absence of that, they will fix it. It might be longer than you'd like, but they will fix it. And you don't even have to probably do anything because the way the, the nature of being on a grid, whether it's a water grid, a power grid, a sewage grid, doesn't matter. If you have a problem, so does your neighbor and your other neighbor, and lots of Karens will call and say, hey, there's a problem, and the city will fix it to justify their existence. So somebody will do something. Again, it might not be optimal, but somebody will do something about it. If you have a problem on the other side of the water meter, i.e., you've now paid for the water, the water is now your problem. The city may yell at you if you're causing problems for others, but they won't fix it for you. They may come shut it off the main to your house if you don't do it for yourself, and you should not do that, but it will be your problem. The thing is, you can open up, if you still have them, the trusty yellow pages or go online, and literally any plumbing company that exists close enough to service your property will be able to say, yes, it might cost some money, 
maybe a lot of money, but we know what to do and we will come fix it for you. Likewise, if you have an electrical problem, it will work the same way. If it is on the service side of or the, the, the grid side of the electrical meter, it is the power company's problem. If it's at the meter itself and its distribution, it is the power company's problem. And while they may not, you know, come out at 3.30 in the morning roping out of the helicopter because you're inconvenienced, they will do something. They will fix it. If it's a problem after the meter inside your home, then you can call any electrical company anywhere that services your area, and they will say, I know how to fix this. I will come help you. Okay. When you're on a well, if the problem is truly just a plumbing problem, a plumber can help you. If it's a well problem, you will find there are far less people that can help you, and in some situations you might have to wait a long time to get help with things you can't do for yourself. It is a similar situation when you're dealing with photovoltaic systems, i.e. solar power. There, if there is a problem that is an electrician's problem on the distribution side, maybe you can call any electric company. Some of them will not want to touch it just because it's solar, and that's not what they do. But maybe. But if you have a problem with the heart of the system, you will find that it takes more effort to get somebody to help you. So you are all on your own. And that means that when there's a problem, it is never the case that somebody, some Karen somewhere will make a phone call that will actually help you. You're going to have to deal with everything. It's not why you shouldn't do it. It's just you really need to understand that. You'll put all this money into a system, and if it breaks, you got to fix it. The more you do yourself, the less warranty there is. And even if there's a warranty, you got to wait for the warranty party to come back and do it. Next, there are limitations to the energy output. There's almost no limitation to what you can do on grid. I mean, there is, but you're not likely to reach it. And it's no problem that can't be solved with certain levels of money to the, to the power company. But if you decide, I just want, you know what, I want to add this electrical thing that draws an extra thousand watts of power You can do it. You'll be able to. You'll be able to do it. When you do off grid, no matter what you do, there is a limitation to what you can do, and that's something to look at. It can be very expensive. While you can get into situations where property is so much less money that the cost of installing installing solar uh, is makes the property cost less than the property you know with grid power of the same kind. It doesn't matter if you don't have money. So you might have the money for the property, but not enough money to go fast enough with the solar. You might have to think about other ways to get there in time. And then so much depends on the climate and the goals you have. It's just not really a negative, but I put it with the bad because it's something that people tend not to consider. If you wanted to buy a property in upstate New York, despite all the problems New York has, let's say New Hampshire, a little bit more friendly of a state uh, from the government side. It's not hard to live off-grid in New Hampshire because you can heat with wood. Good insulation, good wood heating. You could live without air conditioning at all. So there's a whole electrical draw, heat and power, or heat and cooling that's almost not necessary. All we got to do is figure out how to warm up our water. And, you know, it's it, it, people argue whether it's truly off-grid or not, but as long as you can get propane, you can use propane and, and for what I'm talking about. So... You know, not, not really an issue. Texas, 
We have to think a lot more about the size of the structure, the insulation, our value, and how we're going to cool it. Because cooling in Texas is the biggest expense you're going to have. It gets cold. We need to heat. No problem. We can still do wood heat in Texas. It's not a big deal. But there's no such thing as wood cooling, not that I know of. So a lot of it depends on your goals and the climate. A property that you're not at all the time is different off-grid than a property that you're at all the time to live permanently or living seasonally. Some people live seasonally on one property here and one property there. If you do that right, you can take a property that's in the south that would be very expensive to put the infrastructure into cool in the summer, but if you don't live there in the summer, it doesn't matter. If you visit in the summer, you'd like to have a solution, though, please. You see what I'm saying? All right. Next, I want to just talk about some things that I want in a bug-out location. So as I look, and I've been looking for years now, I look for a while, then I stop, and I look for a while, then I stop. I try not, to, And when I find myself becoming obsessed, I stop. Because that's where emotion creeps in. Emotion is evil with real estate. Emotion and investment are bad. And investment in real estate with emotion is worse. It's the devil on top of the demon. All right? But I want to talk about this from the standpoint of, yeah, this is what I want. And I'll give you my justification for it. And I think you should consider that if you're in the market to do this for yourself. I don't think you should say everything that Jack says that he wants in a property are the things that you should have in a property or it's not the right property. Because I'm not you. I don't live where you do. I don't have the mechanisms of travel you do. I know people, for instance, that are private pilots that own their own airplane. Little airplanes. They can land in little dirt strips. Um, when I say I don't want a property to be more than three hours away, they may agree. But their version of three hours and my version of three hours are drastically different. You can go pretty far in three hours in a small airplane. So you, you, you get how that works. And that's, that's an extreme example to make my point. There's always little variables that will change things for you. I own a lot of animals. I need a property I can get to do a day's work on and come home the same day on occasion if I'm going to get all the things done I want on it. I need a property that eventually I can get into a situation where I can throw the dog in the truck, take the dog with me. I'm going to spend an overnighter. That would make my life a lot easier. It would be one less animal to worry about back here by itself. If you don't own dogs and you don't own livestock, that stops, you know, maybe you can go an hour longer without it being, see how that all works. So starting out with distance, my ideal distance for everybody, in my opinion, but it's just my opinion, is two hours. And the reason I say that is two hours is far enough that in just about any natural disaster, it's far enough to assure high probability for redundancy, meaning that if something nukes your house, it, two hours away, the same thing has nuked the other property is very, very unlikely. An hour in Dallas-Fort Worth may not even be that. It may be 30 miles. There are places where it takes an hour to go 30 miles in Dallas because of traffic, etc. So we want to be two hours and outside of the metro area that we're part of as well. So that's another crazy thing. You know, Dallas is a big, Dallas-Fort Worth is a big place. You would live in West-Fort Worth. And there's parts of, like, eastern Dallas that are damn near two hours that could be heavily affected by the same impact because now you're in the same metro area, so maybe it's not, you know, the tornado hit both places. We do get a lot of those around here. Strikingly few of them this year. 
Maybe COVID kills tornadoes. I don't know. But uh, you, you could have some sort of civil uprising that really makes both places not so great. So we want a bug out location. People say, remote, remote. I like that idea. That's what I want. But definitely you do not want to be in the same metro area. And, and you don't want to be even in a metro area of same like kind. So I, I've said you can use things that people don't literally think of as a bug out location as a second property. Um, but I would not have a property, for instance, in either place at all. But just to be in another extreme example so you understand what I'm saying, Los Angeles and San Francisco. Two of one, half dozen of the other. That's not redundancy to me. That's like saying you have redundancy because you have two cables in the same trench. You do, but you don't. See how that works? That's like having your backup drive for your most important files you could ever have in the same room as your main computer that you create them on. They shouldn't even be in the same building. So we want at least two hours away, not in the same metro area. My personal maximum for total drive time, three and a half hours. Three and a half hours, and I rationalize it this way. I can leave... For instance, at 6 o'clock in the morning. And that means I can be on a property at 9.30. If I'm doing a project, I can put six hours of work in. So now, you know, I'm, what did I say, six, I'm 9.30, so six hours after that, 3.30, right? And then three and a half hours home, I'm home, what, 8 o'clock? I, I can make that work in a day. It's, it's not comfortable, I'd like it closer to two, but it's really, really doable. I also justify it on overnighters this way. I can leave at 6 o'clock in the morning. I can be on that property at 9.30. I can work all day on that property. I can wake up. I can enjoy myself with some recreation. I can put a couple more hours of work in, and I can still be home by midday. It's also something that if you, you can work this way, you, you, you know, if you wrap a week up on Friday... You get done with your work, maybe you go down a few hours early, and you go down, you enjoy an evening, you spend most of the day Saturday, and you're still home Saturday evening, you still have Sunday back at the ranch. So I'm not saying every trip I take to a property like this is going to be you know, a same day or one overnight or day, but I'm saying when you can do that comfortably, you use it more. And I see so many people buy second properties, and I call them home gym properties, Home gym probably. So what that, you know, you think about the person that buys a Bowflex and the Bowflex spends more time holding up old clothing than it does ever being a Bowflex. You could have just bought a big stick and it, it would do the same thing. And you mean well, but you don't use it. Well, if you do that with a Bowflex, you can just throw it on eBay or Craigslist and get somebody else to buy it and take it home and use it as, as, a, as a piece of furniture or a coat rack. If you do that with a piece of real estate, it really is a huge waste of, of an awesome investment. So duration tra in travel leads directly to usability. Next, water, water, and water. Water for me is everything. Like I said, if, I, if, if my hunting is confined to squirrels and paper targets, okay. If I can't fish, I, I don't know. I mean, I actually, I'm a, I'm a gun guy. But when you put it between hunting and fishing, I'm much more of a fisherman than a hunter. And I think that the reason for that is fishing is more accessible, something you have more control over once you own a property with water on it. Like, you can only do so much to improve deer habitat without, like, becoming a biologist and investing tens of thousands of dollars. 
But anybody can, like, take a trip to the river and throw panfish into a pond. Right? You can really do a lot with water management. But the bigger thing is, fishing is far more accessible than hunting. Just from seasonality alone. You know, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Deer season in Pennsylvania, we had a month for archery. We had two weeks for rifle season. And no hunting on Sundays, by the way. You want to go fishing, go fishing. There was a zero time of the year you couldn't go fishing. There were certain things that you couldn't keep during certain times. But fishing was wide open. And in the South, that's even more the case. Fishing is a great way to feed yourself. Fishing is a great way to feed yourself on the fly. You know, fishing to me is like one of those activities that it, it can pay for itself when done intelligently. A $50,000 bass boat will never pay for itself unless you're a, a really gifted, extremely gifted tournament fisherman. But, you know, a couple hundred bucks worth of tackle can catch a hundred, couple hundred bucks worth of fish, and for the rest of their life, they're free. And then, you know, if we go hunting and we shoot a deer, you know, we get 70, 80 pounds of meat to deal with. Well, I guess down here it's more like 60. Pretty damn small deer. But that's a significant amount of meat to deal with. We go fishing, we keep a couple of fish, we eat them that night, and go some more tomorrow. Additionally, it's a much easier activity to involve other people with. It's a much more social activity. Hunting is very social at the ranch, the cabin, right? But you don't sit out waiting for a deer bullshitting like they do on TV, or you don't see any deer. Fishing is one of those activities that it's kind of like an additional activity like you can just do things that you would do like lay around and do nothing and enjoy the scenery catch some rays get some vitamin d going and be fishing at the same time you know so i i just love fishing so it, it's important to me not just the water being there because it's life but also because of fishing wooded and hence secluded I do not want a property that I'm going to be managing remotely where people can drive by every day and say, look at that house, and there's never anybody there. If I had my way, I'd have a great big square piece of property, more on that in a bit, and the road that went from whatever main road led to whatever thing was on it would be a couple big S turns where it just looked like it disappeared and you could not see a building or a structure, and you're very worried that if you go back there, some bad things might happen to you, even if they wouldn't. It just makes for less people causing trouble. doesn't mean, and there's, we're not going to get much into security today. You're just going to say that everything you put on a remote property that's not being watched by a line-of-sight neighbor is always at risk. Just know that. But wooded and secluded. Next, if there are neighbors, you want really, really, really good ones. That was something we had in Arkansas, even when we didn't live there. We didn't worry about our property. I had a neighbor that I knew, no doubt, if they caught somebody breaking into my property, they probably would have just shot them and buried them in the backyard and not even told me about it. I was okay with that. Don't go robbing houses, and that won't happen to you. They were people that we could rely on, that we could make a phone call and say, hey, um, we just aren't going to get up this month. Can you run by and make sure nothing's wrong? Make sure like there's not a, you know, the well's not blowing water in the air or something like that? No problem. We'll handle it. So if you're going to have neighbors that are going to be close enough to be interacting with your property, you need to do a little bit of reconnaissance before you make the buy. Just talk to them. And I find that generally you can tell really quick whether people are going to be an asset, a liability, or moot. An asset's best, moot's okay, liability you don't want. 
On a scale of permanence, a neighbor is just below the mountain. Right? That doesn't, because neighbors move frequently, but if they're not going to move, you can't move them. In some ways, neighbors are more likely to move than a law is to change, but they're more difficult to change than a law if they don't want to move. So if you talk to a neighbor, and you can tell, and a lot of times you can tell, this MFR is going to be a problem. I would not buy that property. I mean, everything else could be okay. That is bad. Now, that's a variable that sometimes you can't control, i.e. you buy the property, there is no neighbor like that, and then somebody buys another property and they're that person. At life, you got to deal with it at that point. But if you know going in, and like I said, usually, you know, a knock on a door, hey, don't mean to disturb you, I'm thinking about buying this property up here, can you tell me anything about the area? If that person is a problem person, you'll see it in the first five seconds after they open their mouth. And trust your instinct with it. I know that sounds judgmental, but it's the truth. It really is the truth. Next, um, suitable for earthworks. That's another way of saying water, water, water. I want to be able to put ponds in. But it's also, for me, a way of saying, I'm not buying another rock-filled friggin' property. Now, chunk rock here and there, I don't have a problem with. But rock here and rock like I had in Arkansas, limestone here, granite there, uh-uh. No. I will be able to put a fence post in with no trouble. I will be able to bang something into the ground. I will be able to dig a hole. I will be able to get an excavator and make a swale. Really, really easily. I will be able to put a pond in or ponds in. That, that, that to me, especially a remote property that you're going to build things on using resources that are there, um, yeah, because if you think about it, like a wattle fence is so easy to do. A wattle, think about like, okay, you want to be able to take your dog. So you put in some little cabin, and you want to be able to let the dog out to pee at night without the dog running away on the property. You need fencing. You can go down to Home Depot. Or if you have like a shitload of smaller sapling trees that are sacrificial, you can cut some trees for posts. You can put those posts in the ground. You can put some uprights and some and wattle, which is basically you take long saplings and you weave them back and forth horizontally. You just let wattle fence. And, you know, in a couple weekends, you can fence in a nice little area. It doesn't be huge. It just needs to be a dumping station for the dog in the middle of the night. Because I don't know about you guys, but my dogs, especially my older dog, generally, I'd say one night out of three... Does the ass bump up against the bed like, hey, dude, you don't put me out. You're going to clean something up in the morning. I'm warning you. And I get up and let him out. I don't want to put a leash on him and walk him around, especially in this type of situation where maybe I'm getting up really early in the morning to drive home. I want to be able to open a door and just let him go poop. And he can scratch the door, and I'll either let him back in or he can spend the night out there. But that would just be one example of making use of a resource where it's so much easier if you don't live where I do right now. Putting in a fence out here involves a jackhammer. Period. End of story. And I don't want that ever again. Um, next. Kind of the same thing. Natural resources. To me, that's free building materials. It, it, it's amazing what you can do with property that has a good amount of timber on it and some of it you're willing to harvest to utilize. I mean, just go price lumber. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to build a cabin from trees, but, boy, there's a lot you can do. 
There's a lot you can do with timber framing, etc. That is, if you have resources or the right kind of rock, or again, water. But you really want to look at the, what is the value of the natural resources on the property and what's the usability of them. So make sure that there isn't some sort of restriction to prevent you from doing something. Next, I shouldn't have to say this anymore. So now a lot of you just want, I know what he's going to say. No HOAs, no POAs, none of that shit. For me, it's got to be unincorporated. I don't want any city inspectors showing up to tell me anything about nothing. Period. I don't even want no building codes. State of Texas, unless the county has done something to change that, and there is at least one county I know of. I can't think of the county. It's the county course Canada's in. Um, but in most counties in the state of Texas, if you're in an unincorporated area, if you want to build a residence, you need a septic permit. 500 bucks for your septic solution. And some places will come back and they have to say, okay, it's installed, and they sign off on your permit. You never see them again. Some of them, once you pay them, once you propose your solution and they give you your permit, they go away and never come back. I like that. That's a level of, with something like this, where you're going to be kind of hodgepodging things together, at least I would be, I don't want anybody to buy, if I want to put ponds in, I don't want to ask anybody if it's okay to put a pond in. I don't want to ever see anybody. If, if I hire some guy with an excavator or a bulldozer or something, he's out there driving around, and, and, and anybody from the county drives by, and I'll be like, oh, look, somebody's doing something over there. That's nice, and just keep on going. Period. I mean, that's, that's what I'm looking for there. Next, no skinny rectangle layouts or other odd shapes that make big pieces of land feel small. I found a piece of land today when I was just seeing what was out there. It is what led to the show. 15 acres. 29.9. Huh. Sounds cool. Look it up. There's a whole bunch of lots, anywhere between 5 and 30 acres, all adjacent to each other, all being sold. Already don't like it. Already hate it. But all the lots, including this 15-acre lot, are long, narrow rectangles. I hate this. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I understand why people subdividing land and wanting to make sure they can provide access to all the tracks, do it. And as soon as I started thinking about developing a community system and looking at infrastructure costs, it led me straight there. And I hated that it did, but it's where it led me. So I get why. But to me, owning 15 acres, but having the property only be, let's say, 150 feet wide... It's a 50-yard wide property. That's insane. That's insane to me. And I've seen some that are worse. I've seen some that are worse. I saw one. This was the, There was a house on this one. But it was. It, I, I believe it was 12 or 17 acres. For some reason, those two numbers stick in my head. But the, either way, I was like, wow, that's got to be decent. We went and looked at it. This is when we bought this house. We went and looked at it. And honest to God... That property felt smaller than the property I live on now that's only three acres. And it was like it was a minimum 12. And the reason why, it was about, there was a little piece like yard that was about ah, just under an acre that was kind of squared out. And then it kind of pinched down to this long, narrow hallway of property. And on one side was a farm field, and on the other side was a road. And there was no place that you couldn't stand in the middle 
and throw a baseball if you can throw unlike if, if you can throw better than a sissy a sissy girl baby right you could have thrown a baseball to the field or to the road for the entire strip of property it was basically a wooded road and it was like this is not usable acreage at least there weren't people there right so unless somebody bought lots on the other side of the street it would have been somewhat okay if it had been wider. But, man, when you have a property, and I looked at a lot of property in Arkansas like this when we bought our place up there, five acres, and the, and there was a house on both sides of you, and you, you felt like you were in a suburban neighborhood in Dallas, even though you had this big deep. No, that, that's first thing I look at when I look at a property. Proximity to like major highways and things like that, like right up against highway frontage, I don't want that unless it's a really, really big property and a really, really good deal. But but odd-shaped, odd's not bad, but odd-shaped in a bad way. Like I've seen like trapezoids and stuff, and they're fine. They're fine. But when you get something that's all weird and narrow, stay away from it. Next up, I want to talk a little bit about structures to consider. The first one that everybody should at least consider looking at is conventional housing. And I'm, I, I know if anybody looks at my notes, they're going to be like, oh, man, what about, you know, SIPs and, you know, which are, you know, uh, insulated panels and stuff like that. Okay, I'm, I'm actually calling all of that a conventional house. And the reason I'm calling it a, a conventional house is whether you have a house that's built out of two-by-sixes, from fur lumber, or you have a house that's built out of uh, like steel frame with foam or sips or concrete or whatever, if it is a square house that you can hire a contractor to build, a bank will issue a mortgage against it and you can sell it as a regular house and it will appraise as a regular house. The bank does not give a shit if it's built with sticks or sips. doesn't care. If you build a round house, as I found when I tried to buy one, you may have trouble even getting into a praise to get a mortgage against it. So that's why a conventional structure is a good idea to at least consider, depending on your budget and your goals and your timeline. Because it's going to add significant value to the property and it's going to be easy for somebody to obtain a loan for, which broadens your buyer's market and makes it easier to sell. The reason undeveloped land is often so affordable to buy is you have to rely on buyers with a lot of cash or you have to do owner financing because the banks will not tend to lend money as easily as they will for a home. A lot of it has to do with certain structures of FHA loans and veterans loans and stuff. Some of those can be still used to buy raw land, but it's more typical that that land has to be the kind of land we're trying not to buy here. More like designed for subdivisions and things like that. Yes, I know you can buy straight raw land, but it's more complicated. Just trust me. But when you put a conventional conve conventional home from the way that it will appraise for a lender on it, the number of people you can sell to goes up exponentially. So that's why it should be at least considered. The next would be the tiny house concept or a shed. And I think there's a lot of utility in this because... It does not take away your ability to do anything else later. And you can, you can do something like you can go down to a Home Depot or a Lowe's, assuming there's one in the area. You can pick one out, and in a day, the shell is there. You now have a solid structure 
keep you warm and dry and keep some shit in on your property in one day. And I've seen people, I'm going to build my own, and three years later, they're multicolored car guy from high school, right? You remember multicolored car guy? He was the guy who had the old Chevelle or Nova with a green fender and a white hood and then an orange fender and then a primer other fender and three mismatched wheels and one Krager mag. And it sounded like, ah, because the exhaust was falling off of it. And you're like, dude, what are you going to do with this car? And you're like, man, one day when I get some money, I'm going to get the other three Kragers. I'm going to put 60s on the back and 70s on the front, Kelly Springfields. Jack it up. Candy apple red paint job. Thrush mufflers. Chrome kit on the motor. It's going to be sweet. Oh, okay, yeah. And you look at this guy and go, no, it's not. And you leave for like five years, you go to army or high college or something, and you visit home, and you hear, and there goes multicolored car guy driving down the road, and you, you happen to meet him at like the bowling alley. True story. Hey, man, you still got that car? Yeah, man, one day I'm going to get some money, right? There's so many people that when they say they're going to build their own little tiny house or something, life gets in the way, and especially with a remote property, it's hard to do. And you can have a shell, boom. There's some value in that. Uh, Bo uh, Brotherton is going to present on Shed the House conversions here at TSP20. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I don't know that I'm talking about something as big as he is because he did it to live in. But I think there's a tremendous value taking that tiny house shed approach. RVs, or tiny houses on wheels, I'm going to lump together even though I see them as very, very different things. I think setting up a remote property with a trailer sitting on it is an invitation for someone to hook up to your trailer and tow it away and steal it along with everything inside of it. I think there's some ways that you can make that harder to do, but I don't know that it can ever be totally prevented. And RVs and tiny homes on wheels leave some things to be desired. The advantage, assuming you are comfortable towing Either one, and I would stick more to the RV for this option. If you're comfortable towing them, you have a place to keep them at your main property, then all your shit for your trip stays in them, and you can build a pad, an overhang, all kinds of usable outside facilities that maybe can be vandalized, but don't have a lot of things for people to steal. So instead of a grill of this conventional, you might build a really cool masonry fire pit for cooking on. What's somebody going to do? Steal the ashes? Maybe they steal the metal grate. Okay, you're out 50 bucks, right? You see what I'm saying? You take cheap cinder block and build a cooking system out of that. It's all mortared together. Some jackass, because they just want to be a jackass, can get in there and bust it up with a hammer but it's a lot less likely than somebody breaking into your cabin and stealing all your cookware. So the beauty that I see of an RV, if you have a vehicle that's capable of towing it, you're comfortable towing it, you have a good place to maintain and keep it when you're not there, is basically you have a self-contained living quarters that leaves with you and comes back when you come back. You have to now add things like, okay, it's a two-and-a-half-hour drive, but towing an RV, it's a three-hour drive. They slow you down, trust me. But I think that is the real advantage to an RV, is being able to... Uh, next, mobile homes. Uh, just going to say, I think that in the majority of instances, especially in the South, mobile home and off-grid living don't really go together. 
They don't really go together. A mobile home is a tin can. And in this instance, we're probably not talking, like I've talked before about like if I was going to buy a mobile home to live in, I would go to like Solitaire. Solitaire builds the best mobile homes I have ever seen. Um, and you can have them built to code so they appraise as real property and they sell the way a site-built home would even though they're uh, mobile. Um, you can get a huge decked out, coded as standard real estate uh, build from Solitaire for like 135000 at least last time I checked. And bigger than any site home that you can come to for 200000 bucks. But you're probably not talking about that here. You're probably talking about a much smaller structure if this is indeed a getaway property. At least I would be. So the only way I've seen that seems to make mobile homes work pretty well in our summers in Texas is I've seen a lot of property that I looked at in East Texas. It seems to be very common there. You 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 see you know three bedroom two bathroom home on three acres with guest house. That almost inevitably means there's an old single-wide mobile home there that really has seen way better days, and it is not looking good. But it's there, and it exists, and it's you could you could live in it if you wanted to. And what they do a lot of times, they, they basically put a structure over it. It's almost like a pole barn. It's like just straight-up supports, and over top of it, there's like a tin roof that's like about two foot above the main roof. And what it does is it puts the thing under shade 90% of the day. And... I have to say, one of them I looked at, I was like, you know, they must have done that because the roof leaks, and it was easier to do that than try to fix the damn thing. And then I went inside it. It was like 101 degrees out, and I went in there and I went, I don't really want to live in here with no climate control at all, but this does not suck. Windows open and a couple of fans blowing, this does not, it, it, this, this is tolerable. Especially if it was like, you know, a weekend getaway, tolerable. And you just don't go in mid-August, tolerable. And it has me thinking like, and I've, I've talked about this before, but, you know, I've always thought about, well, what if you put in your, your, your tiny shed house and then to function stack, you know, you don't do something with a high gabled roof. You do something with more of a flattish looking roof so this is more easy to accomplish architecturally. And then you, you build a high deck over it. I'm talking a proper deck. You can go up some stairs. You can hang out on there. It's outdoor living space over your home. And then with some solar shading and stuff like that, it seems like you could really drastically reduce the heat on a home like that. And with proper orientation, you could let it get blasted in the front with sun in your winter's as that solar angle lowers. Just an idea that I thought I'd throw on top of that. The, the best options, I think, here, if you have the budget, the time, the capability, earth contact structures and dome home construction using something like Aircrete. All of these things, or uh, I've seen like uh, sandbag home construction, things like that, uh, eco bag or whatever they call them. Man, it just seems that that's kind of the way to go. You've got a very, very strong structure It's it's pretty much there forever. It's not going anywhere inside a human lifetime. It's got extreme climate control capability, and I don't want to say much more on it. I just want to say, like, that would be the way if, if you could do it. Uh, this, I guess, would also include things like Earthships, where you're doing rammed tires. I've just seen that take so long. That is, 
that is three multicolor car guys together for some people. You know, there's like 75 year construction project to build a three bedroom home. There is something to be said for that tough shed model. And like I said, what I like about the tough shed model is you put up a tough shed. It's like camping that can be glamping. Right? You ever heard of glamping, glamour camping? It can almost be glamping overnight. And if you ever do something more substantial, no one ever said, gee, I wish I had less storage. Gee, I wish I had less outbuildings. Gee, I wish this outbuilding would just, unless it's falling apart and full of rats, when you have an outbuilding on a property, you're like, that's nice. I'm glad that's there. So I, I think that's kind of, you're, you're quick. And, and this is the other thing I like about it and why I lean toward it myself. Because I can immediately start doing the other things that I want to do, whether that's a more substantial structure or whether that is property-level projects like installing ponds or anything else. Because now I can be comfortable. Now, I can, If nothing else, I can throw a high-efficiency window unit air conditioner in it, and I can take my you know dirty hand tools generator with me in the back of a truck or even a trunk of a car and I can be comfortable. You know, you add, you know, some sort of composting toilet and some source of water and man, I'll put it this way. Occasionally we've had people camp on our property and we've taken one of our sheds and said, Hey, we're going to be clearing this out so you can use it. No one ever said, no, I don't want that. <laughs> Everybody wants the shed. Nobody wants to live in the, well, I would say nobody, but people generally are like, gee, I can't wait to live in a shed. But when you're camping either on the ground or in a hammock or in a shed, people tend to pick the shed. And again, it can be repurposed. My final thoughts today, this was not meant to be a diatribe on this is exactly what you do and exactly how you do it so that you can live off grid. And I hope no one saw the title and thought that. I just wanted to get you guys thinking about this, start some discussions about it and some ideas about it. Um, I have some ideas that involve some of these things for another purpose for TSP20's workshop for some breakout sessions. kind of wanted to prime that pump, wanted to get your ideas. I wanted to have more discussions about this one going down the road. I want to hear your thoughts on either how you've done this or how you've thought about doing this. And with that, let's go ahead and wrap up today. First off, I want to remind you guys you can help support this show so easily by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you do your online shopping at TSPAS, no matter what you buy, you will help support the show and the work that we do. Again, TSPAS.com, T-S-P-A-Z, TSPAS.com. Um, on that note, I have the item of the day is the same as the item of the day yesterday, except it's not the same, it's different. It's the same but different, man, right? Um, it is the DeWalt 20-volt Max XR cordless drill combo kit. Now, how's it the same but different, man? So yesterday I came out and said, listen, I've been waiting for over a year to bring you the deal that I know comes on this set. This is an awesome set. I won't go deep into it today, but it's a great impact driver and a great hammer drill. Lots of power. Retail value of purchase alone, $370 to $400. As a kit, you can often buy it for as low as $260, upwards of $300. When you buy it all together as a kit, they give you a discount because they want to get you in on their platform and their, their batteries. Every once in a while, it goes down under 200 bucks. When I say once in a while, once or twice a year, and usually for a day or two at the most. DeWalt is very, very protective of their brand. It went down to $199.99 yesterday. I put it up, sold like crazy. By 8 o'clock, 
the deal was gone on Amazon. It disappeared. I was checking my numbers, and I noticed that some people were buying a renewed version. More on that in a second. And I looked at it, and it was gone. And they had no inventory, and only third-party sellers were selling the product, and all the new ones were back to $260 to $280. They were selling some used ones for around $190. Not renewed, used. So I look at this renewed option. It's from Amazon Renewed's program. And it ends with a part number R. When you see a DeWalt part number that ends in R, it stands for refurbished. Let me tell you something about DeWalt. DeWalt is not in the business of you buy a drill, you use it for a while, you send it back on a warranty, and they rebuild the drill. This does not economically work. That is not that is what you are led to believe, but it is not what renewed is. It's not what rebuilt it is, not what a part number R from DeWalt is. These are products that either had some blemishes on them and were factory seconds and nobody ever touched them, Those are unusual, but it does happen. Or they are products that somebody bought for one reason or another returned and there wasn't really nothing wrong with them. A tech somewhere checked them out, plugged them in, made sure they all worked. They put them back into packaging and they send them back out. They are, for all intents and purposes, a brand new product that somebody else bought and returned. This is the important thing. DeWalt built some of the best tools on the market But I'm gonna I'm gonna assign this to their marketing people. It could be some other group of people within DeWalt, but I think it's their marketing people are stupid, 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 stupid. And I know quite a few people at DeWalt have reviewed my video and other videos like it and chosen to ignore it. You wanna know what it is? Battery charging. And I'll tell you what it is. DeWalt has incredibly loyal people, and those loyal people all come from mostly the 12-volt, 18-volt world of the old batteries. And the way you took an old battery from an old DeWalt and put it in a charger was simple. You took it out of the drill, you pushed the release buttons, and you dropped it in. And it blinked, and it charged. And it worked. So people get the new DeWalt batteries, they slide in. These are the 20-volt max batteries, and they get the 20-volt max charger, and they stick it in there, and they drop it in, and the light starts blinking. Until it doesn't. And then you take your battery out, and you think it's charged. And it's not. Or it's got a little bit of charge in it, and it dies right away. And you go to DeWalt support, and you say, hey! Our battery doesn't work. And they say, well, did you put it in the charger? And you go, yeah. Well, okay, send it back, we'll get you a new battery. <sighs> When you hear why this happens, you're gonna just literally wonder how stupid people can be and still keep a job outside of government anyway so then they get a new battery or whatever they send the whole damn kit back and get a new kit and it happens again and it happens again and eventually they're like why won't my DeWalt batteries charge on Google and they find my video that has over 300,000 I think like 370,000 views right now and, they sh and it shows me in a minute and 14 seconds saying, you see this? You take your battery and it has to click into the charger like you're clicking it into a tool. And DeWalt could put a sticker on their freaking charger to say, fully click battery to charge or something like that and solve this problem. But they won't do it. And you can go read hundreds and hundreds of negative reviews on DeWalt tools that all come from the batteries don't work and 99 times out of 100 there is the 1% actual bad system. It's this. 
So, this has been going on for years. Go look at my video. It's, it's linked in the, the, the thing today. This has been going on for years. I have hundreds of comments. Thank you. I was ready to pull my hair out. DeWalt was no help. Same story over and over again. Called tech support. They told me to send it back and get a new one. They told me to return it. Blah, 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 blah. At least teach your tech support. Hey, did you fully seat the, the battery? But no. Nope. So what this has resulted in is a whole market of product numbers that end in R. Because DeWalt's marketing and communication department is full of stupid people who seem to actually be at the point of, we haven't done it this long, we're not going to do it now because we don't want to. Very Apple-like of them, right? We're not giving you that feature because you've asked for it too many times. That's how I feel about Apple sometimes. Like, this makes no sense. Why wouldn't you have a pause feature on your freaking camera? Like, why? Why would you do that? Why are there apps that would let me do that with the native camera, but you won't allow those apps unless I jailbreak my phone? Why would you? Because you're obstinate. And that's how I feel the Walt marketing is. We don't feel this is necessary, so we're not doing it. We're going to hold our breath. And it's costing them millions of dollars. So if you ever have an opportunity to buy a DeWalt tool, not even this one, but if you ever have an opportunity to buy a DeWalt tool that's a renewed tool, refurbished tool, however they want to call it, I would buy it. comes with a warranty. It's going to work. And it was not rebuilt. They don't do that. It doesn't make economic sense for them to do that. If you have a drill that actually failed during its warranty time, that actually broke, it makes more financial sense for them to send it to a landfill than to fix it and resell it. Because all they're doing is cannibalizing their own sales. Anyway, with that, <laughs> let us move on from there and wrap things up with our song of the day. Song of the day today is, going back to 1980, once again, 40 years ago, we're doing the top five country music songs of 1980. This one is I Believe in You by Don Williams. Very sweet, gentle, soft song. And another song by, you know, someone from what I would call the old guard of country music. And, and I, I do see 1980 as the year that the, the baton was passed from the old guard to the new guard. And, of course, the new guard is now the old guard again because we're 40 years down the road. But this is when the bands that we think of as being the big bands of country music in the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s began. You don't hear it yet, but you will tomorrow. In fact, 1980s Top 5 is a literal sandwich. Two of the old guard, the icon of new country music to come on board in 1980, and then two more of the old guard. And when you go forward, 1981 forward, you'll never see that happen again. Country music changes forever in 1980. And again, it wasn't the last time it changed forever. But it, this was a seminal change. And this is one of those changes that I'm sure there were people that feel a lot like I do about people like Luke Bryan today, just awful garbage gutter music. Just terrible, horrible, formulaic crap. My feeling is this change took a whole bunch of people that never thought they would be country music fans and made them incredibly huge fans of country music that was still country music. It just had a little bit of that 70s classic rock. And 70s classic rock went away and we needed some place to go. This is where we went. But that old guard... They had one more year where they dominated the top five. Here we go, back to 1980, Don Williams, I Believe in You. 
Don't believe in superstars, organic food and foreign cars. I don't believe the price of gold, the certainty of growing old. That right is right and left is wrong. That north and south can't get along. That east is east and west is west. And being first is always best. But I believe in love. I believe in babies. I believe in mom and dad. And I believe. I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. I like to think of God as love. He's down below, He's up above. He's watching people everywhere. He knows who does and doesn't care. And I'm an ordinary man. Sometimes I wonder who I am, but I believe in love. I believe in music. I believe in magic, and I believe in you. I know with all my certainty, what's going on with you and me is a good thing. It's true. I believe in you. I don't believe virginity is as common as it used to be in working days and sleeping nights. That black is black and white is white. That Superman and Robin Hood. Are still alive in Hollywood. That gasoline's in short supply. The rising cost of getting by, but I believe in love. I believe in old folks. I believe in children. I believe. I believe in love. I believe in babies. I believe in mom and dad.